1: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Bay Area has families from all over the world. Our ancestors spoke many different languages, and some of us have carried on those linguistic traditions here in the U.S., But what about those of us who don't still speak espanol? Or at least don't speak it like we want to, or feel like we should, or that others expect us to? As you can tell from that last sentence, learning a heritage language as they're known gets complicated fast. You gotta deal not just with conjugation, but colonization. Not just adjectives, but assimilation. And really at the root of it all, for most of us, there's pain. The pain of lives you never got to live, but might have, had things gone a different way. So. Let's talk. This one's personal. Bring your baggage. It's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Or, should I be saying, welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's a question that one of my colleagues here at KQED, Mario, has asked me. I don't totally have the answer. Really, he actually busts my chops about it. But I didn't grow up speaking Spanish past the age of three when my family moved back from Mexico City to California. I've heard my name like that from my family and many others, especially since Encanto came out. But in my daily life, I've just never really said it like that. Yet now, I think about this almost every day when we open this show Because it is tied in deep to my identity as a Mexican-American, as a Mexican, as an American, as a Chicano, as a Latino, and what my broken Spanish says about all those identities. Of course, I know I'm not alone in any of this. There are literally millions of us here who know the kinds of prevarications and self-recriminations I'm describing, whether you're thinking about Spanish or Vietnamese, Urdu or Cantonese, Farsi or Mom. And here to help us work through all this heritage language complexity, we're joined by Karen Garcia, reporter on the utility journalism team with the Los Angeles Times, who's the author of the recent article, How Second and Third Generation Latinos Are Reclaiming the Spanish Language, which really inspired this show. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for
2: having me.
1: We're also joined by Veronica Benavides, who is the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project, which is a movement to reverse the trend of language loss across the generations. Welcome.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, Karen, let's start with you. How do you or how do the academics and other people who work in this field, how do they define like quote unquote heritage language?
2: Heritage language is actually a term that I learned um, from Veronica. And she uh, shared with me that it's the language spoken uh, in the home that's different from the dominant language in the country. So um, for me, um, my heritage language, my first language is English, but my heritage language is Spanish. I would describe it as in the background how my parents talk to each other, to family, to neighbors.
1: Mm -hmm. And... Did you feel comfortable in your Spanish as you grew up?
2: Not at all, and I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, still, <laughs> I'm still very self-conscious um, in spaces with fluent Spanish speakers. Um, but it's, ling- English is my first language because um, my parents are both immigrants from different parts of Mexico. But mm-hmm. when my mom came to the U.S. when she was a little girl, she attended elementary school here. Um, and was often reprimanded for saying okay. a phrase or talking in Spanish with a classmate. And mm-hmm. um, that was just kind of one of the influences that made her decide she was gonna teach her children English. And myself and my mm-hmm. siblings, we are um English speakers
1: first. Yeah. Veronica, I mean, my experience is a little bit different from this in that, you know, my dad is Mexican, my mom's from New England, but I was born in Mexico and stayed there till I was three, like I was saying. Um, So when we came back, my sister was actually seven. I was three, but we didn't keep going with Spanish. So would we be considered heritage language learners? I mean, we would hear Spanish from my dad sometimes, but it wasn't like the dominant language that was spoken in our home.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there are a lot of different academic definitions Definitions for what a heritage language is. Um, we at the Language Preservation Project also like to use the term children with bilingualism in their bones, which really uh-huh. reflects this concept that we have a lineage that connects us back to cultural and linguistic assets mm-hmm. um, that are not the dominant linguistic and cultural assets of the society that we're in. And so even if it's through you know we grew up in a in a home or in a community that you know didn't speak the heritage language but through second third fourth you know generations ago that was there i would still consider that a heritage language um and i think that's really important to uh, view that as valid because it's, these heritage languages are lost often not at kind of a personal failure level but because of systemic pressures and systems. And so that's really an, an important realisa- realization in terms of coming back to our, our heritage language and, and feeling um, the, the permission to take up that space.
1: We're talking about reclaiming your heritage language with Veronica Benamides, who's the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project, and the LA Times' Karen Garcia, I love this phrase that Veronica just used, which is children with bilingualism in their bones. Are you one of those people? Do your family have another language aside from English that has been spoken around you or that you've wanted to speak or that your ancestors spoke? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Could be any language. Doesn't have to be Spanish. Number is 866-733-6786. Also kind of scary, shame-filled space. promise we're going to be nice to you. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Karen, I wanted to ask you about how you went about, have you made a few runs at trying to learn Spanish? This is kind of how I feel. Like you kind of go go at it, fail a little bit, try and go at it again. Is that what you've done? Or have you been very consistent?
2: I mean, I think that really it was in my adult life that I made it, a point to have conversations with my parents. Um, I didn't go that far away for school, maybe like three hours away. So talking on the phone with them, um, in the last few years, I downloaded Duolingo. Um, <laughs> but I think same, that,
1: Same, Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and I've also um, recently just put myself on the wait list for Spanish Intena, which is an amazing organization um, founded by women and they created just an amazing safe space to learn, um, to learn at your own pace and also to have meetups virtually um, and now in person. And it's a space where not, again, yeah. not only you learn, but you're in a vulnerable place where other people are also vulnerable learning along with you probably have the same shared experience, probably also have fell shame. So yeah. I'm on that list, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, um, I think my most treasured practice is my dad and I go to uh, every other Sunday, we go to a supermarket together in Wilmington, California, and we meet at 8am, we drive over there together, we just buy produce and we talk, we talk about family stuff, events, work, whatever it is. But when I make a mistake, or when I can't remember what word I want to use, his corrections are very patient, and they're very encouraging. Mm -hmm. And
4: that's that like
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh oh, man it's great (laughs) I can tell you because I've also experienced a family member tell me that you know you're never gonna speak Spanish correctly so you might as well just forget about it give it up um so being able to be in that like two two and a half hour space with my dad is everything because it makes me want to keep practicing, it makes me want to continue having these conversations in Spanish, even if my Spanish is Spanglish, or um, if I need to, I need prompts or reminders for a word or a phrase. Um, It's everything. And that's, I think that's exactly the validation and the work uh, Veronica does, and also the work that Spanish Simpena does. Finding those spaces is the motivation to help people practice or keep it going for whatever the reasons are.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to note that resource that Karen Garcia was just mentioning was called Spanish Sin Pena. Um Veronica Benavides, how about your experience uh around heritage language learning? Um did you come up just kind of speaking fluently and easily with your family or have you had to recapture some of this as an adult as well? Uh
3: absolutely not. <laughs> I did not Come out speaking Spanish easily and fluently. Um, no, well, I think similar to a lot of Latinos in the in the U.S., um, my parents grew up in South Texas um, in the Rio Grande Valley, speaking only Spanish. They were the first in their families to go to any type of school, and they went to school um, just speaking Spanish, and were were pretty quickly met with English only environment and environments that punished them, um, that ridiculed them when they were uh, speaking Spanish. And and so they learned that Spanish was not something that would support academic, you know, achievement or would support Mm -hmm. upward mobility. And I think those messages of, you know, assimilation can also be reframed as messages of survival, right? Of like Mm -hmm. how our communities have adapted In order to survive in this society. And those messages were passed down to me. Um, And, you know, we didn't grow up speaking Spanish. Uh, My parents used it um, around us, like when they didn't want us to understand what was going on, like sometimes would try to get us to speak Spanish to say, like, you know, try to order this food in Spanish, which I think was the extent of what we could do. But, but I really was surrounded by it in a lot of ways. Um, my community was very Latino. Um, my grandma only spoke Spanish. Um, mm-hmm. And I think similar also to maybe a lot of folks who are heritage language speakers, I attempted to learn Spanish many times. Like I had this desire to learn mm-hmm. it, which is what you need for any type of learning, not just language learning. You need motivation. But what was stronger than my motivation was my shame. Mm. Um, And so I couldn't get over that fear of pronouncing something wrong. I couldn't get over that fear of not living up to my identity or expectations around that so that – you know, made me be silent or not really be able to engage in language learning in the way that maybe somebody who doesn't really have that connection to their culture, to that culture, or who doesn't really owe anything to that language, you mm. know, they can dive in and say, like, whatever, I'm just, you know, look how good language. I am.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah,
3: exactly. Exactly. So I think, you know, that is what really helped me to understand that heritage language learning is different than just language learning. Mm. And it requires a different approach and it requires um, a culturally responsive approach, but also recognizing like the historical traumas that our societies, that our communities have been through, not only with folks who speak Spanish, but folks who speak, you know, Mayan or other indigenous languages or who speak, you know, Varsi or, or whatever these cultural linguistic resources are, that they received either through, you know, outright um, violence or through more subtle messages that those weren't strengths and assets. And so it was really coming to that realization um, that I was able to unlock the language. Um, And it was when I became a mother that I had my son and I was like, okay, am I going to pass on my liberation or am I going to pass on my oppression to my kid? And it was really a lot of intentional thinking about like, you know, I want him to feel that um, it's okay to be a learner. It's okay to have mistakes. It's okay to speak a language for connection and not perfection. And so that really was kind of my approach um, and entry into this into this work.
1: Preach, Veronica. That's uh, I love hearing all of that. And we're going to talk a lot more about uh, kids when we come back. We're talking about reclaiming your heritage language with Veronica Benavides, who's the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project, and the LA Times' Karen Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about reclaiming heritage languages, the languages that have been spoken by you know, some of your ancestors, but that perhaps you didn't totally get down fluently. We're joined by Karen Garcia, reporter on the utility journalism team at the Los Angeles Times. She's the author of a great and very comprehensive recent article um, that's about how second and third generation Latinos are reclaiming Uh, Spanish, even if they didn't grow up speaking it perfectly. We're also joined by Veronica Benavides, who's the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project, a movement to reverse the trend of language loss across the generations. We'd love to hear from you. Are you a child with bilingualism in your bones, as Veronica might put it? Or what about maybe you're a parent who would like to... Pass on a language to your children, but aren't maybe aren't sure how to do it or how to keep them speaking, you know Vietnamese or Cantonese. You can give us a call. The number is eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. That's eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed org. If you write a really good email, I promise I'm going to cry reading it on the air. So let's uh, let's fire up the emails. Um, Let's bring in our first caller, Chloe in San Jose. Welcome.
6: Yeah, hi, Alexis. Good morning. Hey, good morning. So, um, yeah, so my husband and I moved to the U.S. about 10 years ago. Um, We're both from France, so we do both speak French, and we have two kids. So one boy who's three years old and a girl who's going to be eight years old soon. And uh, at home, we chose to only speak in French uh, because we thought that, you know, we wouldn't be the best people to teach them English because our English is okay, But, you know, we have kind of a strong accent. Um, And so we thought that, you know, we can teach them to speak French. So they do both speak French pretty well. I mean, you wouldn't feel or see the difference between, you know, my my uh, Mm -hmm. my girl's cousin's. So they do both speak really good French and they speak French to their grandparents and the family. And we do try to, do like, you know, travel to France every year so they do get some um, part of the culture and they do, you know, do a lot of activities with, like, other kids who speak French. But yeah, we, we really chose to separate uh, what we speak at home and what, we speak, uh, what they speak in school.
1: Mm. Uh, quick question. Are you planning on sending them to some, you know, uh, one of the that where they would continue, you know, learning in French or are they just going to, um, you know, standard American schools where they're English all day?
6: Yeah, that's a very, ex- that's an excellent question. So we, we've we asked ourselves that question because I think at some point my husband wants to go back to France and uh, the education in France is very different than the education in the US. But to be honest, uh, those French schools in the Bay Area, they are very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're like, mm, you know, maybe not. But we, for my daughter, we do have a tutor. She's just great. She used to be a director in France. And so my daughter has two hours a week where she actually learns how to write in French, which is uh, very hard, to be honest. Yeah. So she can speak very good French, but for the part where she needs to read and write that we we have a tutor who does that very well
1: yeah hey chloe thank you so much for uh for that um you know testimonial um i you know for me because i did have like you were saying veronica i did have so much shame around not speaking spanish perfectly all i cared about with my kids early education was that they were speaking spanish so they've been going to um EBI in Oakland, which happens to be very close to our our house. And one of the things, uh, Veronica, that I wanted to ask you about is I've noticed among the school community, there's a lot of people who are like my parents, where like one of the people is like a native Spanish speaker and the other person um, is not. And it just seems like it's extremely difficult in that kind of circumstance to really keep it going for the kids. Do you have any tips maybe for parents who might be in that kind of situation?
3: Yeah, um, I, I totally hear that a lot. I've seen a lot of situations like that. Um, I think it's really important to have a plan for bilingualism. Um, just like, you know, people talk about, you know, how, what are different approaches to like raising our kids, there should be a discussion around like different approaches to raising a bilingual child, because it is an effort in order to do that, especially if you don't have access to bilingual schools. Um, it can make it even more difficult, but it's still possible. Um our, in our home, we have three different languages. We have Danish, my partner's Danish, um, Spanish, and English. Mm-hmm. And, and there are so many different strategies that you can use based on your family structure. In order to help with the development of languages, there are different strategies, like one parent, one language, where one parent will will speak that language no matter what, there could be like a time and place like, okay, well, we speak Spanish just at dinner together. Um, there could be, you know, situational Spanish, where you speak, you know, your heritage language in different situations. So there's lots of different strategies to meet different um, levels of fluency and family structures. What we help families in our program determine is like, what is that plan for your family? Mm -hmm. How will it change over time? It might look different when your kids are a lot younger. It might look different when they get to the middle years and the older years. And then how do you make sure, especially if you're in a situation where one person, there's only one person in the family that's a heritage language learner or a heritage language speaker, that they don't carry that burden all on themselves, mm. that it is viewed as a family project that includes not only, you know, folks in your immediate family, but also in your extended family and community to ensure that you're, you know, you're approaching it in a, a really comprehensive way.
1: Mm. Uh, Karen, I wanted to ask you um, at least in my case, it took me a little while. It actually took me until I saw all these other parents struggling to <laughs> teach their kids Spanish for me to really kind of truly forgive my parents for for not sort of making me speak Spanish. I would see all these people just speaking so effortlessly and I would have been like, all you had to do was talk to me and I would be like that. Um did you have any of those feelings where you were sort of, um, you know, had, had some anger or even just kind of some grumbles about the fact that, you know, you didn't come up fluent?
4: I think that for me, <laughs> to be honest, I didn't have any grumbles. Mm-hmm. I think I understood that the decisions that my parents made, more so the decision that my mom made, was out of an act of survival and was out of an act of wanting Um, her children to be successful or her children to be accepted um, in society or in societal spaces. So I think that for me, and this might not be um, something that other people agree with or have felt because I feel that even though we all have these shared um, experiences of language loss, um, heritage language loss, um, everybody feels it differently. And for me, I don't. For me, I understand. Um, sometimes I wish like uh, I wish you just would have had a few more conversations with me, but um I under I definitely understand. I think a lot of people in this field that either study or support or have programs or organizations to support people that want to reclaim the language now or relearn the language now. Um, it's almost like not forgiving, but we it's it's understood what what happened is understood. And it's also understood if you feel upset or if you feel sad or if you Mm -hmm. feel like you wanted more. Um, It's a very forgiving community, I think. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, One listener writes in, I'm biracial, black and Mexican from California. And when I lived in D.C. for college, a man asked me for directions in Spanish. When I explained I would do my best as I don't consider myself fluent, he basically said, I'm so sorry. I thought you were Latina. When I try to say that I am, I just don't know the language fluently, he just repeated the same thing. It was the first time I felt kind of shoved out because of not being brought up knowing the language. My father did not want to teach us Spanish because he forgot so much since the schools and children's homes he was sent to back in the 1940s did not allow him to speak Spanish. Over the years, he forgot a lot, and he wanted us to learn it properly in school. I learned a lot in school, but now I want to learn more, but it's so hard to find affordable classes. And we're in California. It shouldn't be this hard. Um, my one tip there is the community college classes are very cheap, um, and that's a thank you for that note. Let's um, let's go to uh, Jason in Piedmont. Welcome, Jason.
7: Hi there. Um, this is Jason Villaluz. I grew up in Connecticut, and both my parents were doctors, and they had, uh, Filipino doctors, and they had recently passed away, and I find myself. Uh, Missing them so much, so the only way I've been trying to re- reconnect with my language is watching YouTube videos and, mm-hmm. that to say, TikToks of these Filipino language speakers that try to help you enunciate. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, I will I will try when I go to Seafood City and the various Filipino districts, try to reconnect with them and try just try to like have casual conversations with those elderly Filipinos.
1: How is it working?
7: Uh, extremely bad. I mean, <laughs> really, really bad. Yeah. I, 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 I just not getting the tones right, and um, you know, I'm still trying though.
1: Yeah, you know, Jason, I appreciate that. I mean, there, there is something about failing in your heritage language that I think people have. You know, if you're if you're coming to language from the outside, you just don't feel it in in quite the same way. And I feel like if I have that kind of interaction where I miss on Spanish with someone I'd really like to talk to and, and connect with and then find myself blanked, uh, I'll think about that for like three weeks. <laughs> um, so Veronica, I, I again come back to you for like a strategy. Um, I feel like I don't know. Do I need breathing exercises? (laughs) Like, What are the things that can be done to actually help you kind of push? Because we all know you're going to need to sound bad, silly, incorrect, trying to speak any other language. So for people who like us, like me and Jason, who are in this situation and you're staring at someone blankly who just asked you something in very fast uh, Spanish or Tagalog, what do we do to sort of calm ourselves and, and stay in the fight of the, of learning the language?
3: Yeah. I, I mean, such a great question and I've definitely been there. Um, I would say breathing exercises are great for any situation. <laughs> I think that is definitely an approach here. Um, you know, in the moment instances where you, you feel like you can't respond, Um, I would say just be really gentle and kind with yourself and um, not be too hard on yourself. I think it's really important to understand that like stress and shame blocks learning and communication. So really trying to like ground yourself And also not apologize for not speaking your heritage language like that. You know, if someone tries to make you feel shame about that, that's their problem and not yours. And that's, you know, perpetuating this this idea that actually when. When colonizers were stripping communities away from their language, they did that because they wanted to weaken the ties within the communities. So if we internally are perpetuating that by saying, you don't belong to us because you don't speak our language, then we're perpetuating this colonialistic thought that is just separating us from our humanity. Mm. So if you encounter someone doing that, you know. But Veronica, what if the person
1: making me feel shame is me? You know, it's like the Spider-Man meme. You know, Uh, (laughs) it's that's that's, I think, what uh, what I struggle with. Um, Let's uh, I. Dale has a really interesting question. Dale in San Francisco. Welcome.
8: Hello. Hi. I just I wanted to share um, my thoughts on it. I'm um, an American that had high school Spanish, was living in Mexico, rural Mexico, Got up to speed there. Then I met a Chilean woman in Mexico who'd been working in tourism there, so she was speaking a very international Spanish. We began a relationship and then got married and have a child. We started, um, and immediately my wife's language is we became a family. Her Spanish switched to Chilean Spanish as her family was more part of um, our family. (laughs) And so there was a period where I couldn't understand their Spanish because it was different than the Spanish that I learned. Then as we moved moved to San Francisco, our family language kind of became a really strong Spanish or Spanglish because of all the the mixing. Suddenly our Spanish-speaking family was living in in San Francisco, and so we were speaking much more English. And then there became lots of play. And we had a child, so there was lots of playful, lots Mm -hmm. of play with the language and funny words. Now our daughter is starting high school, and it, and it, it, my wife is getting her master's in her second language, English, and my my daughter is starting high school and studying in Spanish one because she wants to relearn it from the ground up. Mm. But but more than anything, I would just say it's important to keep have the curiosity and the playfulness with it mm-hmm. for the languages because they are so fluid. Yeah. Um yeah, and, yeah. and there's a lot of ways to speak there's a lot of ways to speak Spanish. I mean it's funny now my daughter comes home with the ways that her Spanish raised teacher, you know, from Madrid speaking um teacher is studying Spanish or teaching Spanish and then my daughter or having a mother that's Chilean. And they right. have almost almost a different vocabulary sometimes.
1: <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. No, I mean one thing that uh thank you for that, Dale. I mean one thing that has been really clear uh at a escuela bilingüe when my kids go to school is just Man, so many different types of, of Spanish, so many different ways of speaking, and um, it's, it's amazing because when I'm talking with people from Central Mexico or in Central Mexico, I do feel like I understand it a little bit more because that's the sort of Spanish that um, I, I grew up around. Um, we have a couple amazing uh, comments I want to read. Um, first up, we've got uh, Hannah writes in to say, I hold a lot of guilt for only speaking Spanish and a lot of disappointment that my parents didn't teach me our heritage language. But I've realized that language loss was common with our history of migration and war. During the Khmer Rouge genocide, my mother's father forbid his children to speak their Chinese dialect and only speak Khmer to guarantee survival. I know my mother also holds a lot of guilt for not knowing their Chinese dialect anymore. So we're both on our journeys to learn and embrace our home culture in other ways, like celebrating traditional holidays or visiting the Buddhist temples. It's actually been a nice way for my mother and I to bond as we've grown older. Victoria tweets, so proud of my daughter and her spot on accent. But Veronica, I thank you for making me think about how I might approach learning Spanish formally without my own baggage. And Pierre writes in to say, I grew up in a French-speaking household in suburban New Jersey. I understand okay, but I'm far from fluent, and I consider myself functionally illiterate. The most interesting thing is that people are surprised and even disappointed that I'm not fluent when they hear my name, Pierre. As you can hear, this is a extremely common process here um, in the U.S. Karen, as you were reporting this out, were you able to like Get any sense of like how widespread, particularly for this kind of second and third generation folks, how widespread is it, this like desire to try and reclaim a heritage language?
4: I mean, anecdotally, um, anecdotally, it just, the pe- everyone that I've interviewed for the story, several people that didn't make it into the story that wanted to just share um, their personal experiences, whether it was... Um, Spanish uh, from learning from their parents from Mexico or a different parts of South America um, it is most definitely a shared experience it, everyone has a unique um, part of it or history of it or parents reasoning for it but it is very much widespread and and it's not um, it's not just um, the Latino community um, And and Veronica, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it is um, a shared experience between um, immigrant communities, immigrant Mm -hmm. populations and people that have come um, to the U.S. and have assimilated or have felt that they needed to be successful here, and this is how, um, and letting go of a part of their culture, of their identity, of their person. and, And this is kind of the result of that, of of now a new generation of people that say, wait, you know, this this is a part of me. This is a part of our family, and we should be proud of it. We should celebrate it. We shouldn't want to let it go or trade it in for anything else.
1: Yeah. I feel like it's practically a defining second-generation <laughs> experience to talk about and and try to reclaim your heritage language as best you can. We're talking about heritage languages, reclaiming them with Karen Garcia, who's a reporter on the utility journalism team with the Los Angeles Times. Veronica Benavides, who's the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project. And, of course... We're talking with all of you about your own stories. You can give us a call about trying to reclaim your heritage language or pass it on to your kids. The number is 866-733-6786. I'm loving these emails. Forum at KQED.org. Stay tuned for more.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about reclaiming your heritage language, language that your ancestors may have spoken, with Karen Garcia, reporter on the utility journalism team at the Los Angeles Times, whose recent article, How Second and Third Generation Latinos Are Reclaiming the Spanish Language, really inspired this show. We're also joined by Veronica Benavides, who's the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project, which is a movement to reverse the trend of language loss across the generations. Relevant to this, she's also a... Doctor of Education from Harvard. Uh, we also are joined by Key Sung, who is Managing Editor of Digital News here at KQED. Welcome, Key. Hi, Alexis. So, Key is here because last week we were talking about this very thing, and I learned that Key is actually every Saturday morning, or maybe not every Saturday mornings. Um, Key, what do you do with your weekend?
9: Every Saturday morning uh, around 7 a.m., I join a Zoom class uh, to learn Korean. And I realize in just thinking about this experience, I've been doing this for in some capacity for about 20 years, not necessarily on Zoom, but spending Saturday mornings trying to get better at my heritage language, which is Korean. Wow.
1: And I mean, talk to me about your Relationship with, it. I mean, that's like an incredible amount of motivation. In fact, I'm feeling guilt and shame just hearing you describe that. Um, how f- far do you think you've gotten with it? How do you feel about your relationship to it now?
9: I do what I can, you know. I mean, I, I've, like everyone has talked about in this hour, uh, there is this want for perfection and definitely shame. Um, but you know, I, I do what I can, and and one quote I just want to share a quote that I learned, um maybe like i don't know 6 or 6 years ago that really helped shape this these feelings we have about shame and this is from rick hansen he's a psychologist at uc berkeley of the greater good science center and he said we have a brain that's like velcro for bad and teflon for good And I think about all those stumbles where, you know, like I couldn't, uh, a a Korean speaker couldn't understand me or um, all those terrible moments. But I also try to savor more of the good moments, like the times that I was watching a K-drama and I understood what people were saying without having to read the subtitles. Mm. Or the times I was able to text my dad in Korean, something that would have been unheard of, uh, you know, I don't know, in the past. And so I've been a language learner for about 20 years. Uh, with deliberate effort and, you know, not like Saturday mornings for the entire 20 years, but really where I can do it. You know, there's some years where I go without taking classes. Um, there's some years where I go, you know, I don't know, three months out of the year. But I try to do what I can because I think that's uh, that I, I, I'm trying to just do what's um, available mm-hmm. to me at the yeah. moment.
1: Have you noticed any difference for the people in your classes? I mean, as Korean culture has exploded across the world and we have K-pop and we have K-dramas and everybody's interested in Korean culture now. Have you noticed any difference between people who are taking it just because, you know, they really love BTS and people who are taking it as heritage learners?
9: There are a ton of all of us. I think it turns out uh, in every class, uh, there's usually a mix of um, heritage learners or heritage speakers who are trying to you know reclaim their language. And then also a lot of K-pop stands and who who are actually incredibly fluent. I mean, I hear them speak. I can literally close my eyes and like not think about the fact that they're not Korean. Um, There are people in my class who've um, uh, also never been to Korea, but actually speak really well. And in many ways, it's inspiring because it shows that with enough practice, with enough exposure, like I can be like that person who... Um, maybe doesn't have the shame and the guilt that might get in the way of even taking that step to learn language, but um, you know to see like how far you can go if you're if you spend the time and have the resources to learn.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna go back to the phones in a second, but Keisung, thank you so much for joining us, sharing this experience. Actually, I think there's quite a few of us at KQED who are in this position. Kei managing editor of digital news at KQED and really excellent heritage language learner. <laughs>
9: uh, <laughs> Keep trying. Never give up.
1: Never give up. Um, thank you, Key. Uh, Veronica, you know, one of the things that I've I've struggled with is the sense of it, I'm air-quoting here, it being in there, and the it, in this case, being Spanish. And that I kept thinking, like, well, if I just, like, listen to some Spanish podcasts or I merge myself uh, for a bit or I do some Duolingo, somehow, like, those early language roots of, like, having, you know, learned Spanish as a little baby would, like, magically spring back to life. And when that didn't happen, I'd get so so frustrated. Have you had... Uh, any experience with that where people sort of expect themselves to be better than someone who's coming to the language fresh would be?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it I think we often are better than what we imagine. Um, so I think when we are speaking a language um, and we uh, like he said, we focus on like the the negative things are the things that we're messing up and not necessarily the positive and and this is really a mindset shift that I've had to had because I want to pass that on to my children. And also it really facilitated my language learning is to look at from look at it from a strength-based perspective. So I think for a long time, I know this wasn't Karen experience, but this was my experience that I was like, you know, my parents should have taught me Spanish. Like, why didn't they teach me Spanish? Mm-hmm. And then when I had my um, firstborn, I I realized like, okay, my parents did what they could and what they gave me was better than nothing. And that was a foundation that allowed me, that gave me some leeway to access this language in a different way and looking at those strengths. And, and whatever I pass on to my son is going to be better than nothing, even if it's, it isn't 100% or if he can't you know write a college essay um, in that language. And so I think with that, it being in there, it is in there in some form or another, maybe it's not full fluency, but maybe it's a connection to the language. Maybe it's some motivation. Maybe it's some, um, ability to, um, have an ear for the accent, or you can, you're, you're a passive bilingual where you understand it. And so it's really important to take that strength-based perspective and, and to operate from a perspective of enoughness, um, rather mm-hmm. than a deficit-based perspective. Yeah.
1: I love that. Um, give us a little extra motivation. Um, our producer, Blanca Torres, uh, got a cut of her six-year-old, Lucero Aldana, uh, daughter of one of our, our producers. She attends a dual immersion school um, in the East Bay, and she's talking about why she wants to speak two languages. Yo me llamo Lucero Aldana. ¿Te gusta leer en inglés y en español? Sí.
4: Porque te gusta hablar dos idiomas? Sí. Why do you like speaking
1: two languages? Because I like to learn and I want to new two languages.
2: Who are you gonna talk to in two languages?
1: My grandma and my grandpa and my other grandma. I love that. Uh, Lucetta Aldana joining us this morning. Um, Thank you so much for for doing that, Blanca. Um, Ron also wants to note uh, another issue here, um, an adjacent issue and one we should do uh, a whole other show on. Ron writes, the issue of a heritage language is not only an immigrant issue. For those of us who are First Nation citizens, many of our languages have disappeared under the onslaught of English only and acculturation. For those of us fortunate enough to have extant languages, the number of fluent speakers continues to decline, and with the loss of each first language speaking elder, we lose a universe. I've been studying my own language for years, and it is only recently that I've been able to participate in a conversation. We must preserve indigenous languages, and each of us has a responsibility to give it our best. Acquiring a second or third or fourth language is not antithetical to learning the common national language. For us, it is critical to cultural survival. A really good uh, message there. Another uh, listener had wanted to uh, note that the process of losing language began centuries ago in Latin America when Spanish replaced indigenous languages. I wouldn't say totally replaced, but at least um, became the dominant language of the area of the world. Sadly, many indigenous languages in Mexico are in jeopardy of being lost forever, and the family is trying to relearn their ancestral language. Um, Let's bring in um, Adam here. Adam, in San Francisco. Hi, hi, yeah, hi. I'm here. Great, go ahead.
10: Um, So I was calling because this is a very interesting and kind of hits home subject for me, and it's the first time calling, and so I'm kind of excited. Welcome, um, welcome. um, Thank, thank you. Um, I was calling because uh, so my heritage is Assyrian; it's uh, old Mesopotamian heritage. My parents are born in Iran, and I was first generation American. Um, they spoke in-Assyrian and English growing up. And then when we got to school, the schools at the time were telling the parents to basically only speak English at home because they didn't want to waste time speak teaching us English in school so that we wouldn't be far behind other students in our classes. And my question is kind of along the lines of what is what is the kind of status quo these days? like what what mm. do schools, are schools encouraging kids to? Are parents to continue speaking that language at home so that they do grow up bilingual or are they discouraging it still like they did with us? And like, cause that, that was, you know, that kills a lot. This is a hard language to learn. You have to basically find an Assyrian church that has elders that will teach it in classes that are like you know, Sunday school kind of class. Mm. Um, it's not a Duolingo or right, right. Bible kind of language. So it's, it's very hard for me to ever find it again. Like there's some passive understanding I have, but um, I've also recently just lost my grandparents, who were the main speakers and the main reasons of speaking in the family. Now they're gone, so English is kind of, you know, the the predominant thing now. But it takes away from who we actually are, you know, because we yeah. are. You know, do not, you feel that as there. like I mean, a loss? Now, I do. I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, there was a lot of oppor- missed opportunity of being able to get more communication with my grandparents growing up. They knew English a little bit, but not so well that they could like you know tell me these long cool stories about their lives or what it was like living in iran and why they left and you know like i get the stories from my parents so they can tell me these things but it's not the same when it's not you know from them and so there's it was always limited communication with them growing up so as much as i love them and love to be with them it was never it could have been you know there could have been such a bigger relationship there you know mm,
1: yeah adam thanks so much for uh for sharing that experience and Yeah, I sometimes forget uh, with Spanish how easy I actually have it, you know, that there are many languages. It's just much more difficult to access those um, kinds of resources. You know, one listener um, writes in to say, this is for parents where one or both parents refuse to speak their native language, even if for reasons that are understandable. Colon, speak it. <laughs> you will give your children a bilingual advantage that could help with travel and jobs. My parents are German and Austrian. Both escaped the Holocaust. My father refused to speak German, so I did not grow up speaking German. I will at some point study it because I would like to learn it, but it would have been great to grow up uh, bilingual. Liza writes in to say i'm ethnically Chinese, born and raised in Peru until we moved to San Francisco when I was just short of eleven years old. My first language was Cantonese, followed by Spanish, followed by English. However, my English is better than my Spanish, which is better than my Cantonese. My son is in an English Spanish bilingual class at school. He goes to Saturday Chinese school, but it 's a struggle. My question is, how do you get children to appreciate heritage language so they're willing to learn I'm sure he'll appreciate when he 's older, but he's not appreciating it at seven years old. Man, do I feel that?" We are in a pledge period here at KQED. So head on over to the pledge. We want you to support. Thanks so much. And back to the show. I, you know, when you have these people who are multilingual, Veronica, I wanted you to maybe sort of address them. It feels like an embarrassment of riches to me, honestly, that you might have multiple languages uh, spoken in the home. Can you uh, talk to me about? if if there are specific difficulties that people might be want to think about.
3: Do you mean specific specific difficulties as a multilingual person? As a
1: multilingual household as opposed to a bilingual household, yeah.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we have a multilingual household, um, and I think there can be, like, communication errors, right? Like, um, if everybody doesn't speak the same language, so my husband speaks Danish, but I don't speak Danish, and I speak Spanish, but he doesn't speak Spanish – um, so I think that that can deter some people from um, using those heritage languages and passing them on to the kids because they're like, well, we just want everybody to be on the same page, so we'll just speak English. But I think um, you have to be kind of extra communicative about what you're doing, what you're saying. Maybe saying it in Spanish to your child and then repeating it in English so your you know partner can can mm-hmm. understand. So. Think there are, are a lot of challenges in that way. I think there can be the challenge that you think just because you speak the language that your child will, um, will then absorb it. Right. And language learning doesn't happen through osmosis. Um, there has to be some real intentionality behind it. And I think most importantly, what we work with folks to understand is that like you really more than anything want to develop a positive relationship to the language because even if your child maybe speaks it up until six and then takes a break, maybe then they'll come back to it at 12, but but really understanding and knowing the damage that shame um and like unmet you know, expectations can do to language learning is something that you want to avoid um, and really keep it as something that um, is not based in terms of what, you know, what would happen if they don't do it, but you know, what could be preserved if they, if they could.
1: Mm. Let's bring in uh, Claire in Alameda. Welcome, Claire.
3: Hi, thanks for taking
11: my call. Yeah, I just, I had a couple comments. Um, My daughter uh, studied, she just graduated, she studied linguistics, um, and that was her her major, Mm -hmm. and her final paper was on language loss and how that affects um, mental health, Mm. um, you know, and brings up, like, Depression and so forth, mm. and I come from a family that's got a lot of um, Spanish-speaking folks, and Italian, and um, of course English-speaking, and we got we all got together um, at Christmas time, and my brother was joking that the language that was being spoken was Spanglishiano. <laughs> <laughs> there is like a strong drive. Um, for all of us to speak and learn mm-hmm. our heritage languages. And, um, you know, I, I unfortunately wasn't able to, wasn't taught Italian growing up because my aunt, when she went to school and only spoke Italian, um, was teased, um, mm-hmm. I guess mercilessly, and so they stopped speaking Italian in the home. And I feel the same kind of loss a lot of other callers have been talking about of not having that language mm-hmm. and... um mm-hmm. Pushing it, it'd be so much easier. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I know. We all we all think about it. We all. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much, Claire, uh, for sharing that. We have a couple of great comments that I I want to get to. Michelle writes in to say I'm mixed race, Tejana Mexican on my mom's side and white, mostly Irish on my dad's side. I grew up with a n- white name outside the house and a strong Latina grandmother in the house. She wanted my sister and I to achieve the dignity and status that she knew was just out of reach for her as a Tejana Mexican American. Part of this was not speaking Spanish to us She spoke it to my mother Especially when there was something that needed to be said about my father That she did not want us to hear But she made it clear to us through her actions That speaking Spanish was not going to help us I'll never forget her telling me You're half white, you're almost there Oof What was confusing is that at the same time She was the strongest and toughest chola you've ever met Um, Another story coming in. Veronique writes, Both my parents are Arabic speakers, but they didn't want to teach us the language because they wanted us to integrate well into French society. We ended up learning all the bad words. But I ended up reproducing this with my own kids with my French language because my husband is an English speaker and it's hard to keep up with teaching a language. They're complaining now, but I remind them that they didn't want to make the effort either when I read to them in French and refused to listen to it. It's really an effort parents and kids have to make to teach and learn a language together. Last comment, Gary writes, I sometimes notice this interesting dynamic from people in terms of their expectations regarding a heritage language based on if you look like you should be able to speak the language or not. So sometimes there's an expectation that one should be able to speak the language or don't speak it or don't speak it fluently. Then it's met with sadness, disappointment or letdown. And when someone outside the ethnic or cultural group can speak the language, they're met with, wow, that's great. Yeah, I have seen that many times. Thank you so much. Uh, we're, we've been talking about reclaiming your heritage language with Karen Garcia of the Los Angeles Times, whose recent article inspired this show. Thanks for joining us, Karen.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We've also been joined by Veronica Benavides, founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project. Thanks for joining us, Veronica.
3: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
1: I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is the amazing song Salta. Thanks so much for all your calls and comments and sharing this pain all together. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
11: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum
1: are provided by
11: the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.